Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He grew up in New Zealand, and he came to the great country of Canada when he played for Sate. He's been playing pro in Greece, and you'll see him coaching this summer with Team Ontario, Team Canada, and lots of other people. Please welcome to the show, Tyler Latitulia. Tyler, thanks for doing this, man. Sorry about your last name there, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) So take me from the beginning, growing up in New Zealand, what other sports were you playing, and how did you fall in love with volleyball? Yeah, um, I was actually born in Australia. Um, oh, no but I moved to New Zealand when I was nine, so and those are kind of my formative years. So I do claim to be a Kiwi, um, but I have dual citizenship. Um, I played like every sport, I think, up until high school, which is I think in New Zealand's around thirteen, which is where I found um, volleyball and and really fell in love with it. So I ask all our Kiwis because we have had a few on the show. You're a pretty good guy and a pretty big guy and a, and a great athlete. How did rugby not scoop you up? Isn't that like the yeah. national sport in New Zealand? Man, uh, my family plays rugby. My brothers play. My dad played. My uncle actually played for Japan. My my dad and my dad's from an island in the Pacific called Tonga, and they scouted my uncle from there to play for Japan, um, which was cool. Uh, my mom like talked me out of it from a pretty young age. So all, all the head injuries, and I right. think she was probably a bit ahead of her time because I'm hearing in New Zealand now that a lot of kids aren't. There's a lot less participation. Sorry, the participation is almost the same, but it's because uh, the girls and women's game is really growing, but a lot less guys are going into rugby because of the head injuries and the stuff coming out there. So, yeah, I was. Short short answer is I was too scared. <laughs> Actually, I did go to one rugby practice, an intermediate school, which is like our middle school, and a dude fended me. Like my friend, I I ran it straight to him, and he had the ball, and uh, I guess he ran straight to me, and he just fended me with his hand into my face. I fell on my ass, and I say ass, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like, Nah, I'm good. I'm not. I'm not playing this. Wow. Wow. So as you're growing up, at what point did you start pursuing, uh, were you thinking NCAA at a point, thinking Canada? Like what made you want to leave home and pursue like post-secondary in North America? Well, it it was introduced to me, like the idea of playing in North America by a guy named Sam Tuivai. Um, he came and played uh, at Brandon University. And yeah, so that, and he, sorry, Sam went to my high school. So that's, that's how I was introduced to the sport. Like these older guys were playing and um, we we all wanted to be like them. And then Sam went off eventually to play in Canada. Uh, and I think around when I was 21, I just decided like, I've got to do this. Uh, I sent him a message um, and I also sent a guy named Lockie Pollock, um, who we played on the New Zealand junior team together. He was playing at uh, Mount Royal um, in Calgary. And yeah. I got in contact with some coaches, ended up at State. Nice. Yeah, we just had Grant Wilson on the show talking yeah, about yeah. Uh, how he tricks uh, Australians and New Zealand guys to go to move yeah, to northern Manitoba. That, yeah. um, is that kind of your experience where he mentioned, like, we value them, we give them a good experience, and then word of mouth helps? Like, is that uh, obviously, like, you're looking up to these athletes, but was it them kind of confirming that, like, yeah, Canada is a good place to play that, like, confirm that you want to get on an airplane? Because I imagine you didn't do an official visit till to SAID until you were a student there, right? Yeah. And, uh, like, to be honest, I, I won't speak for all internationals, but I didn't care where I was going. Like, it was like, I want to play this level of volleyball, like college volleyball, and um, I don't care where it is. I, I had an offer to Lakeland College. That's where Sam went for his fifth year um, to pursue his firefighting uh, certificate. And, like, I won't <laughs> it's in a place called... Um, Comparing that to Calgary, Lloydminster is where it's called. I won't speak down on Lloydminster, but I much would I think I made the right choice, is all I'll say. Uh, yeah, and, and it is a word of mouth thing. Like, if you don't know what to do or who to talk to, um, yeah, like I, I've kind of gone my whole volleyball career, like really getting to know people and just kind of inadvertently networking and making my way through. Um, through people I knew, just getting to know them. 
Nice. So when you first started talking to coach, is it just through email? Did you send a little bit of video or like what made you land? Like, did you have many options you were weighing or like say it was going to be the spot? I, I think it was Lakeland I chatted to first and I knew the process needed video and stuff. So I just scrambled to find video and I thought none of it was good enough. But, um, I, and I was older at the time too. I was 21 when I, when I came out. So, um, yeah, it was just over email. I was chatting with Dan Gilbert, who was the coach at state at the time. And, um, he was very professional and have had everything organized. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a more attractive option. And what were first impressions when you arrive on campus? Like was, was the level what you were expecting? Was the coaching what you were expecting? Like what was the first couple of weeks on campus? Like, I, I feel like, um, when I first got on the team, like I hadn't ever been coached. Like I, I really have a respect for the, the science of volleyball in Canada, the way it's, it, uh, I know it's in North America in general, but even in Europe, it's a bit more, um, intuitive there. So the way that the sport was broken down to me, I just had never been exposed to. And I, I just had a real appreciation for that. I think. And what did you think of the level of the league? Because uh, obviously, like you had heard good things about the level of, of Canadian college, but when you finally play, uh, I imagine Red Deer was probably pretty good, or yeah. you play um, Keanu or, or some other schools. Like uh, again, like not only your team, but the level of the league was that kind of meeting your goals as well. I thought I think like when I'm thinking of how I felt when I first came, that I thought I could be like one of the best athletes, which I never was. Like I was above average. Uh, I think. Physically, like the athletes weren't crazy different to what I had been um, exposed to. Whereas U Sport, I think physically, guys there are on average just a lot taller and jump a lot higher. But um, being put into a system, which I had never been exposed to even that word of system before, uh, was a huge learning experience for me. And being uh, because teams do video on you. And they just expose your weaknesses. I think I, uh, and and also my first year I didn't start. I started maybe one or two games, and I'm sure they were just throwaway games or a guy was injured or something. But um, especially in those uh, second, third years, I really got to work on my weaknesses because teams would just exploit you. And as you're progressing and getting more playing time, is that when the coaching change happened? Like when did Sean McKay step in? Was it your second year? Yeah, my second year, Sean came in. Uh, and he was this young guy from Ontario. We didn't know much about him. We, I was, me and a couple of guys were kind of part of the hiring process. Like, not like we <laughs> hired him, but uh, our opinions were accounted for, I guess. And um, yeah, we, we knew he had kind of gone through the Volleyball Canada coaching um, system or he had his masters, I think, stuff. So, what? Um, it was exciting. And then, yeah, I think Sean coming in, a lot of us that played for him for those three years, or for me, it was three years. We have a lot of uh, admiration from just how he took over the program and, and nothing against uh, Dan, who was there my first year. But um, yeah, we really enjoyed having Sean. Uh, so with Sean, obviously, uh, he had a great playing career at Western, uh, I think did his master's in coaching, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And then I yeah. uh, was with London Fire before he started to move around. And now he's obviously the head coach of Sask. But uh, early on in his coaching career, what stood out to you? Like when you look back, it's like, yeah, that makes sense that that guy is a U sports head coach and he's working with the national team system. Like, is there anything that stands out that even as a young guy, like he was getting it? Yeah, I'm, it was clear to us that coaching was his career and, and that's what he wanted to do. And and his, um, like he was a very much, I don't want to say he was very much a player's coach, he, but he listened to our opinions and he heard us and, and understood us. Um, he was able to connect. Like we felt very much part of the um, decision making. And at the end of the day, it was Sean's decision at the end of the day, but he considered our opinions. But also like his reputation, we knew not to mess with his reputation as a coach. Like we're doing if we did something stupid um, off the court or like that reflected poorly on him, like 
there was definitely a line where um, you know we had to think about and, and to be honest with you, I don't know if we ever thought about that before like um, how our behavior as athletes just like young people who want to enjoy like we're in university and stuff how that um, how that affects holistically so yeah I think it was pretty clear that th this guy really wants to coach uh, and everything uh, I don't know how you know well you know Sean but everything is very very organized with him too <laughs> just like more his personality I think but uh, yeah that that feeling you had was that ever explicitly said or that was just like a respect thing you had with the team like what was there team rules or the way he carried himself or enforced it or that's just something that you and the other guys like totally picked up on yeah I wonder like I, I do remember Sean explicitly saying it, um, something about his coaching career and, and his reputation that he holds quite um, dear to him or it's he he values it um, but I, I wonder if I'm making it sound like there, like we had real strict rules or like the culture was quite rigid. It, it actually wasn't. It was it was quite I want to say player centered, where we chose what we what we wore to practice. We ended up wearing all the same color uh, each day. That was driven by us. Uh, I'm laughing because I heard on the sharp cuts. <laughs> cuts episode you guys talking about how stupid that is but i mean it came from us not from sean like um yeah i mean if it happens organically and it's team building i can get <laughs> on board with it if it's like totally a sign i mean what's what's the point but uh no i wasn't uh trying to paint uh sean as this big authoritarian and everything reflects on him i just thought it was a, a cool feeling that uh it wasn't fear-based or rule-based. It sounds like it was like a genuine respect yeah. and like and like you said, a holistic like awareness that like you're part of something bigger than yourself, right? Yeah, and actually, uh, I'll tell you a story of I think it was his first year, and um, I had a I think one of my biggest challenges as an athlete. Well, absolutely, my biggest challenge throughout being an athlete was my psychological performance, and. Uh, uh, we just finished a mental performance meeting with the next gen guys, and um, I never had any. I mean, a lot of guys never had those resources, but I think I definitely could have benefited from something like that growing up. And I remember um, we had a scrimmage. I want to say it was against Lethbridge, and this guy was um, talking smack through the net, just chirping, regular Alberta chirp. Um, <laughs> but like where <laughs> where I'm from, we don't really do that. At least where I'm from in Auckland, like it, that kind of banter just didn't happen. It would always like that would kind of result in a fight almost. And so he was chirping my teammate, and I I remember going under the net and saying like, if you keep talking like that, I don't know what I said, something stupid. Like, if you keep talking like that, I'm going to knock you out. <laughs> I don't know. And it was a preseason match, so the ref, it was a preseason match. Um, but Sean talked to me one-on-one -on -one, uh, and he's like what what happened like, i just want to know what happened there i told him you know where i'm from yada yada you can't say that i can't really remember but he was just like i just need you to know um the ref said if you did that in a match you'd be suspended for two for two games at least uh and i i feel like he probably said something like, like we can't have that but it was never like he's telling me what to do, which is something I just hated. I still don't love being told what to do. But it was one of the first times that a that a head coach has just sat me down and leveled with me, like, and approached the conversation with, like, what happened instead of, hey, I saw that happen and we can't have that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, that was preseason, so I think pretty early on I had a pretty solid respect for, for Sean already. So with your, your second year, obviously you're getting more playing time and you're starting to improve. But on top of that, uh, the team's performance is improving. So obviously it must've been a great feeling going to the gym, getting better every day. But uh, what was there a moment that you got like the confidence that you're like, yeah, I can contribute, I can help the team. Like, was there anything that you felt really clicked in that second year? I think those middle, those years all really blurred together. Like there was um, obviously for me, what stands out is we won provincials in my third year, uh, which was my second year with Sean. But 
um, yeah, I, I definitely, like I improved so much. And I, I think what, one problem in my head is I always thought I had to be, like I was so focused on, I guess what we would call outcomes. Like I wanted to be an all conference player. I wanted to be the best on the team, yada, yada. And I think I missed out on how much I was actually improving. Um, in all in all aspects of performance, and it's funny. Like I have my personal YouTube channel that I have been uploading highlight videos. In high school, I used to make highlight videos of all my teammates, and I made them on myself. Um, and I inadvertently made kind of like a, a timeline of my skill development from when I was maybe seventeen, sixteen, seventeen, and um, just in my season in Greece, I was looking over those things and I was like, wow, I, I was one, I was really bad. <laughs> I don't know how I made certain teams, uh, but also just like had such an appreciation of how, uh, how much I've improved. And, and I, I really think those five years at state, um, were the, were the big, um, where I made the biggest gains, of, I think. Yeah, what a, what a cool moment to have that uh, there to kind of see it like that. But I'm wondering when you're in the moment, uh, talk to Garrett on the show, obviously we do sharp cuts, and he mentioned he wanted to be an All-Canadian, he wanted to be Player of the Year and stuff like that. And that gets tested where all of a sudden you want more attempts, you want the ball, you want certain situations, your setter's not getting you one-on-ones. Like, did you have a moment like that where you were so focused on being like, I want to be an All-Star, I want to be an All-Conference player that – like a, a little bit of ego started to creep into like the, the team system and your yeah. skills? Oh, for sure. I, I think it for sure happened. One thing that came up when you said that is I remember talking to Sean, it would have been uh, probably our second or third year because we had this guy named Trent Mounter, um from Australia who ended up playing at Mount Royal and was, I think, in uh, U-Sport All-Star in his fifth year. But just a super, super talented um, outside hitter. And I was saying to Sean, like, I think um, I'll set it at Nathan Goss. Like, he doesn't want to set me pipe. But, like, if I'm in pipe, Trent's in the front row, you know what I mean? Like, and Trent was a phenomenal outside hitter. Obviously, I'm not going to be getting the ball. So, yeah, I did. it did happen. And, and I think my personality as well and my philosophy at the time would sometimes hinder the team like I was quite intense but I was very intense player and sometimes would take it too far um whereas I like to think I've calmed down quite a lot <laughs> since so you you take down provincials in your third year um is it fair to say that's right around the moment you thought you could play pro or when you were first year like you're going to say because you want to play pro volleyball like when did it click on you that you could play at the next level because uh a lot of good guys have come through the CCAA, but a lot of good guys have just come through the province of Alberta. So with you winning that, was that was that confirmation that you could take the next step? I don't know. I think for me, it's never been like, like, I think I just knew I'll go play pro. And I really, like, I think another misconception, in, particularly in Canada, is that pro is better than CCAA or U Sport, but there are probably a thousand different pro <laughs> leagues. And I was always like, I'm going to play pro and I actually don't care what level it is. I'm going to do it. Like I, I, I have to do it. Um, yeah. And, and I think in, I think I remember feeling at state that I really wanted to play at U sport. Like I felt like I'm not doing enough. Like I should be, I need to play at U sport to prove something to, I don't know who, but, um, yeah, that it was very much outcome and sort of like accolades based. Like, I don't know, am I going to make a legacy or something? No. <laughs> so, like, yeah. so as you get older in your career, what kept you at state versus maybe going to uh, like did Mount Royal switch to U Sports when you're still there, or did you ever call Calgary yeah. or Alberta? Yeah. Like, did you ever take a serious look at a U Sports school or? Uh, you felt state was the best spot for your development oh, no. and your education. I, I emailed them. <laughs> they, <laughs> they just wrote an email back at UC, and uh, I don't know if I I reached out to Sky at, at Mount Royal. Um, 
like I think UBCO was was interested when I emailed them, and I took a look at how much international tuition is there, and it's like fifty grand a year, and uh, yeah, so I was good. <laughs> but it, you know, actually, my I think I don't know what year it was, but Sean made a good point to me that look, you if I if I did my five years, I would have. I would have graduated in my fifth year. Like, I think it's best to just get your degree. And then if you want to, I know you want to play at this higher level, you can do that playing pro. Uh, that's when I felt some comfort in, in staying. It was 100% ego-based, me wanting to leave State. Like, State was such a good place for me, for my skill level, uh, even just living in Calgary. Like, I had such a good support system that I had built around me as well. So with Sean giving you the encouragement to obviously like finish your degree and you get the five years and then go play pro, uh, what was the process? Because every time I ask this question, I feel like I get a different answer. Yes, there's a pathway for volleyball players to go pro, but it, it seems like it's always a little bit unique on how do you find an agent? How do you weigh offers from League A to League B to finally determining where you want to go? So what was your journey of becoming a professional volleyball player from uh, going from state to your, your first day at the club? Um, I think... I don't know when it was, maybe after the season ended, I reached out to a buddy, Liam Matheson, who actually played at Brandon as well, uh, another Kiwi. Uh, he he played his last year, um, Keanu, and did really well there. Um, he had an agent because he had played a year in Austria, I believe. Um, so he put me in contact with that agent who is um, Greek. And uh, I had no bites all year. There was a couple times where he was like, there's a team in Austria. I was like, yeah, yeah, take it, take it. And they would ghost us. Uh, and this is during the pandemic, mind you. Like this is, 20, this is 2020. So the pandemic was in full effect. Teams weren't really taking anyone. Uh, yeah, and then I, I honestly think it was like August where Mike, my agent at the time, found me this team a place called Mithilini in Greece. Uh, and it wasn't a great contract. It's an A2 division. He's like, I normally wouldn't take you guys here, but this is all we have. <laughs> I was like, no, let's go. Let's do it. Um, so, yeah, at the end of the summer, I, I flew out to Greece. Uh, I, one benefit, I think, of playing pro volleyball is you're in Europe. You're in a beautiful country like Greece. So just describe for, for me mostly because I have no idea, but for the listeners as well, uh Mitalini, what's what's the city center size like yeah. uh how big is volleyball there like what was the the lifestyle like yeah so um Mitalini's in lesbos lesbos is an island um just off the coast of turkey so like um i look at lake ontario when we're there and i'm like turkey was closer than like, <laughs> okay. uh yeah so it's an it's an island beautiful weather well, yeah, you can imagine a Greek island has beaches, obviously, all around. Uh, the city is, is, I guess you call it a small city, like it's 150,000 people. Um, yeah. So second division, uh, what's your closest opponent? What's your furthest opponent? Like, did you have to take some pretty gnarly road trips being an island team, or did you get back home every night? Well, Greece is way smaller than I thought. We most Half of our games are in Athens. Um, which is a one-hour flight um, for preseason. We have to take the ship uh, just to save on money to Athens, and it's like overnight, thirteen hours. And I hated that, man. Like, uh, even to save money, we didn't have beds. Like we just slept on the couches out in the big lobby thing. And <laughs> I'm already not good at sleeping, and but my teammates knew I just hated if we had to take the ship anywhere. Um, but yeah, outside of that, there's a city called Patra, which is like yeah, an hour flight to Athens and then another two or three hours. So yeah, every second week we're traveling, but um, Greece pretty small. It wasn't that, wasn't that bad at all, especially compared to that state where we would drive on a bus eight to nine hours to, um, to Briarcrest College. Uh, but yeah, that was the worst. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you come from a conference with pretty gnarly travel. Yeah. Um, just looking at Volleybox here, is it fair to say you were the only foreigner on the team? Yeah, you only allowed one. Um, and then even in the league, 
there was only one one other guy, maybe two. Um, yeah, I mean, it was not a common thing to have foreigners come in. Um, our team at Lisi had just joined the... Sorry, I should back up as well. That year, COVID um, hit bad in Greece and I left. So I left in December of 2020. Okay. Uh, and then I returned um, in 2022 to play again. Okay, so anyone yeah, looking yeah. at your Volleybox account, really, it says you played for the club for two years, but really it was like one true year. Yeah, right? it honestly, it was one. The first year was, yeah, a few months. I, I was there for a few months. So with the, the foreigner rule and just the way everything happened, did you ever feel any pressure that you're kind of like, oh, I'm a foreigner, I'm supposed to be like the point scorer? Does that come in the Greece League? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what I felt in, in Calgary. For those five years, I think that's why I thought I had to be an all-conference player and stuff. Um, so, like to say I was used to it, I, I guess I was used to it, but it still affected me for the first uh, first bit while I was there. But then I, I I got quite comfortable playing on the team, and I think I've I want to say I've um, just changed my mindset a lot since those days playing at safe um yeah just more especially knowing that this past season was my last in greece there was a point where i was just so present in the moment um enjoying the process of um yeah of just enjoying volleyball and appreciating it so so again just to kind of match an earlier question was this ever explicitly said or you just felt like oh i'm this foreign guy i'm playing professional volleyball like there's expectations like did a coach or the manager ever say that to you or you just felt like that's just something in volleyball we understand that if you're not from there like because there's only a certain allotment for foreign guys on the roster that you then have a big performance demand i remember so if you talk about in, at state it was told to me my first year and and because i was more expensive than the other guys like it was an expectation um in greece yeah i think he did my coach did might have said it, but his English wasn't great. And to be honest, in Greece, I was really much more, I could think a lot more critically independently. If something was said to me, I felt that I was better equipped to, to process it a little more healthily, I guess, if that makes sense. Did a teammate translate for you or the coach and you just had to figure it coach out? Coach knew enough English and by the end of, um, my season, I, my dad's Tongan and speaks Tongan in English, like Tongan's his first language. I moved in with him when I was nine, so like, I obviously was around it and kind of picked up, but I can speak better Greek than Tongan now. And that's not to say my Greek's any good, it's not. <laughs> it's probably highlights how bad my Tongan is, but no, he spoke enough, enough Greek um, to, um, relay the message yeah and just one thing you and i were chatting about uh when you first arrived home it just culturally i think there's a lot of good things but culturally there's also some challenges so just the way you were coached growing up and in canada uh is it fair to say that greece has like a different method and that took some getting used to as an athlete where uh i forget how you described it but i took it in it's like they're almost waiting for you to make a mistake and then yeah. they like yell at you versus like encouraging the good stuff right yeah man that's just europe in general from what i've heard because i had friends playing all over Europe while I was there. So we would FaceTime every week. I had a friend in Austria, a friend in Germany. Um, we kind of just talk to each other to support each other. But like particularly in Greece where I would say culturally, Greek culture um, is a lot more confrontational or even the way, even how people speak to each other, their faces are a lot closer to you than would be in Canada and then I'm assuming Canada we're even closer than maybe the Swedes are like <laughs> so there's just um, cultural differences already but very very passionate people in general uh, it's generalization but the Greeks are very passionate very loud um, very expressive um, in both ways when things are going well and when things are going bad uh, and yeah my my coach there was 
that was did not shy away from expressing his emotions. <laughs> he, to be honest, I, I I don't know why, um, but he never yelled at me once the entire season. But um, oh, he screamed at some guys throughout the year. No, it's just like, what is going on, man? Crazy, crazy. And you mentioned this year, you felt a certain sense of like just playing free because you knew uh, this was going to be it. So was this kind of just a bucket list thing that you wanted to play at the highest level? Now you've experienced that and you're moving on to like the next journey in life? Or what made you confirm that you kind of like, okay, I gave this a shot. Now I want to, I want to face a new challenge. You know, I think I, I think I always knew I wasn't, well, I don't want to say always knew, but I didn't think I would ever be able to make any serious money playing professionally or um, yeah, pay the bills by any means. It, it was just something I had to experience. And after after the COVID season of being in Greece, I um, applied to do my master's and got in. And that was kind of my pathway, kind of my preparation to transition into coaching eventually. Okay. That is one thing I... I remember I always knew I would be good at was was coaching. Well, I was 13, 14 was when you leave juniors, I think, or maybe 15. So my first year out of being a junior in high school, I, I started coaching the junior girls. And I remember thinking that I'm going to be such a better coach than I am an athlete. But, uh, yeah, so I kind of put those things in place. And, and this season... Um, yeah, felt right to get it to get it done and then transition out. That's a fascinating feeling to have so young, right? Because when I look back at my life, I was like, I love coaching, but I wish I would have played like a little bit longer where uh, obviously you went all in and you played at State, you played pro, but like what was so appealing about coaching when you were, were so young? Because as yeah. a 14 year old to be thinking about what you want to do when you're like closer to 30 than you are to 20, it's just fascinating to hear. Oh yeah, I, I kind of thought you would uh, ask me that and I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I don't know why I, I love coaching so much. I think it's probably the the human interaction that the, that part of it, um, the impact side. Like it's interesting in Calgary. Like I told you, I was coaching the Van Gill brothers at a summer camp. At, we called it. It's called Bump and Beach um, at the Bolly Dome, and then we had next gen tryouts and. Uh, saw them both turn up trying out for the national team that's really cool and it wasn't even like a I had any impact because I definitely didn't it was one summer that we that I worked with them but it was just cool to see that and that's not why I love coaching that's the cool uh, like a branch off the tree if you will of coaching yeah, so cool. And I know this overlaps a little bit with your playing career. So if you're a listener, just forgive me because it's not all happening now. You've been playing and, and getting your coaching. But uh, I just looked it up. You and I first met through Jeremy Mueller, a friend of the yeah, show, yeah. and you were doing some research. Uh, so to transfer into coaching, I mean, anyone can really do it. And there's certification and background checks and all that stuff you got to do. But you're approaching this from a pretty high level uh, academically. So I think when we first met, we were chatting about uh, just high performance sport and, and talent ID and development. But uh when you were choosing to further your education, do your master's, what attached you to like this level? Because like I said, you could start coaching club or volunteer at a school team and get into coaching right away where you're doing some pretty heavy research and getting yeah. really into the weeds here. Well, that's funny. Jeremy Ola actually started that Bumpin' Beach camp at Volleydome. I'm nice. pretty sure. So nice little segue. Um, I was attracted to the master's because I, um, I knew Sean did it. Um, it sounded quite interesting. Um, and I was never into academics before. I did it at state. I got a business degree. Um, I was much more interested in the, the fun classes that like philosophy and ethics were just so much fun to me. Um, it was like fall asleep in my marketing classes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I found it, um, through, through Australia. It was just looking at the Australian universities and what they had to offer. I saw it, it looked pretty cool. There were pretty, very applied concepts. The people working there were were academics, but they were heavily involved in industry. They they weren't just teaching theory. And when I had my initial interview about the masters, that really attracted me. 
my supervisor now is is um, the director of sports science for the Oklahoma City Thunder. So it's like just really applied hands-on experience and the academic side as well. Kind of off topic from your interview, but I am curious with a guy being from Australia, what is the obsession with sports research there? Because obviously yeah. you've gone into it. We're both a fan of listening to Joe Baker speak and he's, he's been there and worked at it. Is it, is it maybe the population demands, but their love for sport that maybe they found a competitive advantage or what is it in your opinion as somebody who's, who's seen it firsthand that they love the, the sports research and the data? I, I, I'll need to be fact checked on this, but um, I believe sometime in the 80s, Australia or 90s, Australia did really poorly at the Olympics. And then they, they pumped money into getting medals. Um, similar to like own the podium here, but I, on a really big level. And they really went for low hanging fruit. That's why you see a lot of, because swimming has so many events and yeah, those kinds of sports, you'll see a lot of Aussies competing. Um, I think it roots from that. And they, they have the Australian Institute of Sport. So everything is very, very integrated in the country. And I think that goal is to uh, get medals. The, the caveat to that is when you take money away from team sports where there's only six medals, three in each uh, gender, like volleyball, for example, indoor, let's say indoor volleyball, that's such a big participation sport. So, um, yeah, you're, you're essentially taking money away. Like, what are you doing? You're taking away from active for life, let's say, um, recreational sport and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's a bit of a tangent, but yeah. Yeah, no, no, definitely. So with your own education, I love asking this because I'm such a coaching nerd and I just read it in my leisure where I'm interested in the guy who's doing it uh, through his education. Was there any theory that when you tested it, you're like, man, this is way off. Cause I think that's fascinating in coaching that you can, you can read a study, but when you apply it to your gym or the athletes you're working with, it doesn't always add up. Right. Or sometimes you need to give it more time or sometimes it's just not a valid theory. So uh, I'm curious because you were so passionate and so interested in learning this. Was there anything you're kind of like, Oh, I'm going to try this. And it just totally blew up. No, I think, uh, and in conversations with you, you really have, like we've talked about this, you really have to consider the whole picture like i was introduced to the the field of skill acquisition and motor learning through my masters and i've just become really obsessed with it and it's just so uh related to coaching like you could argue a coach is a skill acquisition specialist um but within skill act there's a theory called or I guess it's a framework, the constraints-led approach, which I know you're familiar with, among others. But I really got uh, stuck into that and and changing constraints and stuff. But I, I just remember at a summer camp, and that's kind of my experience with coaching is largely every summer I've done camps, so I'll limit it to that. But I remember last summer at Phoenix camps, these kids just couldn't keep a rally going. I think they were girls and so i was like grab some water and i'm like oh perfect i'll change the constraint i'll make the court smaller so i i pulled the tape in to me it was maybe like seven by seven or six by six something like that and i'm like what are you doing I'm like oh trust me like i'm like just change the constraint and we'll leave it and they're like this is i don't know what they said they're like this is stupid we don't <laughs> want to play like because every other court was regular size and they don't want to they just didn't see the point in it. So I, I wouldn't say like I see a theory and I and I test it out and it's stupid. Like maybe you really need to consider the full context before you implement any theory. Because so much of sports science is reductionist uh, and and decontextualized. So you you need to apply it in, in the right context. For sure. I think the user has to be open to it. Like your example of a smaller quarter reminds me uh, when I worked at the OVA, LTAD was kind of newer and we were really pushing it in. Uh, USA had a heck of a time. They wanted smaller side hockey and they wanted to play across the rink. 
and participation numbers started to be affected because they weren't playing the real game. Meanwhile, yeah. it's like you can justify the amount of puck touches these kids were getting or the amount of opportunities they were going to get to play. And you ice time was now cheaper because you had three games going along. But because the parents didn't want to do it, like it didn't go off. And it's kind of like this is interesting where you could have all the theory and proof. But if the, the user doesn't want it, it's not going to fly, right? Yeah, and I, I think look, if you're doing something that's essentially quite a, I don't know, radical, but let's just say a radical, when you're implementing something like that, you need to consider the parents. So I know, I've heard on podcasts and stuff of uh, coaches really going all in on CLA, on the strengths-led approach, and coaches have moved their kids to another club because the coach isn't talking to them every uh, after each execution of the skill. So I don't know. I, you have to consider those things, and I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Yeah, I'd love to get your opinion. So motor learning to me, it belongs under the umbrella of physical education and motor learning's there. And I think it's how people learn to move and apply skills, right? So uh, I think the one thing that whenever I get into heated conversations with people is the topic of transfer comes up and we yeah. say, well, the data says that the transfer will be better and people will learn better if we do it this way. But when push comes to shove, it's actually really hard to teach transfer. And I think that's where a pessimist goes, well, see, your way doesn't even work because you can't measure that it's working. Yeah. Where where do you kind of stand on that where it's like the theory says this, and if we do it long enough, the athlete will learn and experience this better. But like you can't you can't quantify it to a coach. You can't say if we do this for three weeks, that athlete will know how to spin serve. Because we don't know. It might yeah. take two weeks, it might take eight weeks, it might take forever, right? So where do you stand on the argument that like even though we can't prove transfer to like down to the minute? Uh, it still exists. Like, how would you prove that to a pessimist? Oh, <laughs> oh and uh, maybe I'll like uh, say that I'm I'm very new to skill acquisition, Molang. I'm by no means an expert on the topic. I just really, really enjoy it. Um, I I would pose it the other way. Like, how do you know these? Oh, oh, maybe I should um, check what you asked me the right question. Like. Uh, like, how do we say to someone, you don't know what transfer is and you don't know if something's transferring, so why should we do it? Yeah, so like an example would be like a CLA where I want the athletes to play volleyball and I think they're going to get better, but it looks ugly and it's kind of scrappy and it takes a while for, for me to say that it's working versus if I invent a drill that's block training and I, I soccer throw in 10 balls at you and we put a target on the floor, we could probably measure that like, oh, you got seven out of 10 balls today and that block training it works and it probably works pretty quickly versus when we start adding to me like game like situations or variables about people moving around or what do you do after you pass it we can't measure that where i think some people get locked into block training because you could you could twist my arm that you could see the improvement it doesn't happen in a game but you could see them getting better at the activity right yeah i i think there's value in in both and like i think literature even i mean Within Skillac, there's two kind of camps that really go at each other about um, theory. Like there's information processing, there's ecological dynamics, and, and but I, I'm pretty sure both of them agree that random practice results in better learning. I what I think about is um, in classes in in high school, in university, like uh, where I had to memorize for a test. I just memorized it the night before, um, probably did an all-nighter, went to that stupid test in the arena at State. I remember those, I hated <laughs> them. And I put down the answers that I had memorized and then I passed the test. And I'm saying the answers like I'm saying it in that way because I don't remember what those answers were. I don't even remember the questions because I just memorized them. So I think, I think, and this is, this should be, shouldn't be taken out of context, but if it looks good in the moment, I don't know how much will transfer later. Like maybe you're just memorizing for a test. Maybe you're just getting good at a, at a certain drill. And there are times, I think there are times to use block training and, I think it really depends on the athlete. I, I personally, as an athlete, I think I really liked it at state. And then uh, when I started learning this stuff in while I was playing in Greece, I hated it. So it's like, okay, now that I think it's not good, 
yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do it anymore. So I think really, you you really have to consider the athlete um, and your own style as well. Yeah, get a big picture. And, and the other side of the spectrum from block training, I would say, is is USA's model for a long time was the game teaches the game, and I think. In my opinion, I gave it the honest try, but I, I kind of tailed it back to where I was a big more like a, a constraints led approach, like a CLA guy, where I think the game is important, but if the situation doesn't repeat, then I would question how much learning's going on. Like, is there such thing, and don't believe me, we're not treating you like you're the ultimate <laughs> yeah, expert, but I'm getting it, nervous. <laughs> in your opinion, like, is there too much randomness maybe if we play a pure game versus a CLA? Or like, do you, would you subscribe to like the game does teach the game and kids should just play a lot? No, I, I like for. I think a great example is me as a beach volleyball player. Like I've never been coached, and I'm really not good at beach. Like <laughs> I've just, I just really enjoy playing it, and I've had barely any practices that aren't just me getting some guys and going down to Woodbine or what have you when I was in New Zealand or whatever. Um, so of course not. But like, you need some some structure I, I think you need some structure to to learn for sure yeah the, the part that swung me was alex ferguson he wrote a really good book and he talked about uh you know he can name hundreds of people who go to the park every sunday and play with their buddies but they're not getting good and they yeah. put in ten thousand hours right yeah. so i think there has to be some sort of focus or feedback loop or anything um one thing that i'm trying to dive down the rabbit hole is and i'm wondering if you've come across in your studies is just the concept of like representative training design where and this is the biggest challenge I have as a coach is like, we want the intensity to be there. And we want it to feel like a game, but so many athletes are like programmed that the game, the external factors is what makes it a game. There's a scoreboard, there's a referee, there's something on the line. Like, is there any advice you could give to coaches about like, how do we create that intensity in training when we don't have that external reward of like a crowd or all this stuff? Yeah. To be honest, I, I wouldn't, I'm not even going to speak from the, on the literature. I even know for me, Personally, I, from a motor skills perspective, I was quite a good player. Um, my biggest issue is I would just get really nervous. Uh, the games I just get so nervous, just play really poorly. So there's just tons of value in having that pressure in practice. How you do that, I don't know. I, I wonder if that's maybe a culture thing rather than a, a design thing, if, if that makes sense. Like if you've built a culture where there's intense competition and it's really intrinsic, again, I don't know how you do this. Uh, I'm sure I have ideas, but yeah, with guys like all girls um, are really competing against each other and it's healthy competition that, that exists in that sense. And then I know Rob Gray, I think in his newest book, talked about building, I think, psychological pressure in practice. I think it said something along the lines of, like, it really doesn't matter how it happens. If you, like, can blast loud, really loud music or something, it doesn't really matter that much for it to transfer. Don't quote me on that, but I, I remember reading something along those lines, yeah. I'm wondering for this summer how you're approaching it where you've you've played at a high level, you understand coaching theory, but you're also kind of jumping into the deep end a little bit by starting your beach coaching career. I know you've coached at Phoenix camps and stuff, but now you're coaching with the provincial team and the national team. Um, how are you uh, facing this moment or is there any advice you would give to a new coach where uh, I think we all want to be lifelong learners, but we don't enjoy being like bad or new at something, right? Yeah. So how are you navigating that situation to either find confidence or find ways to feel like you're you're contributing by being in this like new new arena for you right well, yeah well, I, I felt some of those same feelings when uh, you asked me to come on board of, well I've never played beach at a high level uh, I've played against some of these young guys in random tournaments like they know I'm not good at beach <laughs> like they're not gonna respect me but uh, I think I was quickly um, able to to flip that a little and I mean good players don't make good coaches I mean sorry I should say that differently good players if you're a good player doesn't mean you're a good coach and you know um, there's there's not a lot of correlation there so 
uh, I have a lot of strengths and also who cares how good a player someone was you know these guys um, have come in at the tryouts and have been real respectful and stuff but I'm not there to play and compete with them I'm there to help them so um, I think one thing I knew that I could bring a lot of value to almost outside of the volleyball aspect is uh, questioning like I think there's a lot of of really valuable information within the athlete that I can bring out and not have to know, okay, is it their passing today? Is there something off with asking them how they feel about their performance and just keep building that out, almost like talk therapy. Um, and that's kind of a skill that I've built through um, designing my thesis, which is qualitative work, which is all about open-ended questions. So that was some comfort that I had that I can bring value in that aspect. And then obviously, I think I understand high performance sport. I was playing at a decent level of performance. So yeah, there's strengths within that. Man, this has been so cool to hear about your playing career and dive into some coaching theory. I'm just looking at the clock here. I've taken a bunch of your time. Uh, one tradition we're trying to build into the show is just uh, show that volleyball, it's a, it's a pro sport. You've played at the highest level, but something odd or unique must have happened along the way. So I was hoping you could share just a funny story before we let you go. Yeah. Um... So it's been long enough now that I think I can tell it, but well, it's not that bad. But when I played on the New Zealand junior team, uh, one night we, me and the guys, it wasn't before a game, we went to a restaurant and um, we grabbed a few beers. We were of age, it's all good, but I don't think we were allowed out. That's, we definitely weren't allowed out. <laughs> so it's funny, me and my friend went and then two other guys just happened to be there as well. So, and I think it ended up being like six of us. And these are big boys, like six, eight, six, nine, big Kiwi guys. And we really stuck out at this restaurant. Um, we were in Myanmar, uh, which is in Southeast Asia. And um, so we're like the only foreign looking people. And there was only one waiter who spoke English. So he was our waiter and he barely spoke English. Uh, we're ordering this stuff in Southeast Asia, everything's so cheap, we're all big boys, we're just munching on all this food. I remember um, the, I would buy this banana split, it was like $2, and we all kept buying them, they had to take back the, the bowls because we had used all their banana split bowls. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I, I, anytime the food uh, was, was ready, um, the bell would ring, uh, for the kitchen, from the kitchen. And I made a little drinking game. Like anytime the bell rings, we all would go, hey, and drink. <laughs> and so after a while, our bellies are full and we've been drinking and then the, the rings started getting quicker and quicker. And like, hey, clink, have a drink. And like, oh my God, again, bloated from this beer. And we look over and there's like five Burmese, uh, our five waiters, like all standing around just watching us with big smiles, just going <laughs> bing, bing, bing. <laughs> and we're like, oh, you got us, man. Oh, it was really funny. And yeah, yeah, that was a nice little story. And when we tipped the guy, like, it wasn't much to us being from New Zealand, but we tipped them a lot of money at the end and stuff. And it was, it was really cool. So, yeah. Now, you weren't allowed out. Did you have to perform the next day? No, no, it wasn't before a game. I think it was like, I think we had half a week there before we, or maybe we had a half a week after the tournament. Um, yeah. Sweet, man. Yeah, what a cool experience that volleyball gave you. So I just want to thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing all that you did. And yeah, looking forward to working with you this summer. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, everyone.